Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace, where we talk in depth with everyday people about their fears, their challenges, and their triumphs over mental health. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and I hope over the next half hour, you'll be engaged, enlightened, and inspired to live your very best life. My guest today is Anna Mendez. Anna is the Executive Director of Partner for Mental Health. She is a longtime advocate for mental health awareness and education and is actively involved in several mental health organizations. And most recently, she initiated a new Senate bill that allows defendants of mental illness to introduce evidence pertaining to their mental health and how it impacted their state of mind um, at the time of the alleged incident. Anna, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really excited to be here and, and speak with you today. Well, a lot of your work focuses on reducing criminalization and destigmatization of mental health, and particularly, I guess, the latest bill that um, was passed. So can you kind of tell our listeners a little bit more about that? Because I kind of stumbled through that in the introduction, and I apologize. But uh, would you share uh, what you did in terms of that particular bill? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll start by giving um, just the briefest, the briefest background about why this bill was necessary. Um, in 1985, um, a gentleman by the name of Stamper was convicted of possession of a large amount of um, illegal drugs. And he appealed his conviction to the Virginia Supreme Court on many grounds. And one of the grounds of his appeal was that he was, his trial court judge did not allow him to introduce into evidence um, information pertaining to his serious mental illness. And the Supreme Court um, upheld his conviction. They denied his appeal. And in their denial of his appeal, they said that because the science of um, psychiatric medicine is advancing so rapidly, it is not reasonable for the court to stay up to date. Um, about the kind of newest advances in psychiatric medicine. And therefore, it is never relevant. A person's mental status at the time of the offense is never relevant to their defense unless they're one of the 57 people a year in Virginia that plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So essentially what the Supreme Court, the Virginia Supreme Court said in 1985 was either you can plead not guilty by reason of insanity, which essentially no one does in Virginia, or your mental status at the time of the alleged offense is irrelevant um, to your case. And clearly that's just not an accurate reflection um, of the reality of some experiences of mental illness. So for the last 36, 37 years, 
defendants with mental illness, as well as defendants with intellectual disability and developmental disability, were not able to talk about that during their trial at, at, at all. Um, now, they could introduce um, material related to their mental status after they were convicted, so as mitigating wow. evidence at sentencing, but they couldn't actually bring it into the fact-finding portion of trial. So that's that's kind of that's the background that made this bill so incredibly important. And at Partner for Mental Health, um, about half of our clients have criminal justice system involvement. And we're really fortunate in the Charlottesville and Albemarle area to have really progressive prosecutors. Um, we get it right in the Charlottesville area more often than we get it wrong. But that doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement and that we couldn't do things better. And so now that now our local defendants and defendants all across Virginia who, who don't have such progressive prosecutors are going to be able to bring this really important evidence um, in, into their trial. Because if you don't have... If you don't have the necessary mental capacity, there's a legal term called mens rea. If you don't have the necessary mens rea to commit a certain crime, you should not be able to be convicted of that crime. And that's why this legislation was, was so important. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I am curious about prior to this new bill or this new law, is you said there was a small percentage of people that pleaded um, not guilty for a reason of insanity. I was surprised by that low number. Um, so my question is sort of twofold. Why do you think the number was so low? And how did that affect this bill moving forward? Oh my goodness. Um, so, the, so on average in Virginia, 57 criminal defendants a year are found not guilty by reason of insanity. So that is an incredibly low number. It's not unusual for there to be more than 57 defendants a day on a docket um, wow. in Charlottesville. So that just kind of gives you some idea of the scale. It's less than 0.02% of all criminal defendants. Um, in Virginia, and there's and there are a lot of reasons, <clears throat> a lot of reasons why that number is so is so low, um, but there are two in particular um, that I think are worth talking about. One is, as as you know, Candace, that prejudice and discrimination um, against people with mental illness is a serious problem in all domains of our society. Mm -hmm. And that includes our criminal justice system. So um, prosecutors, judges, and juries are very reluctant to find someone not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and, and defense attorneys know this, um, and it's their job to inform their clients to that, to that reality. So oftentimes I think that we know that that acts as a deterrent um, 
from people attempting to plead not guilty by reason of insanity is that they feel that even though they might have um, part of the not guilty by reason of insanity plea is you have to be assessed by a professional. They have to agree that you met the um, legal criteria for insanity. Even, even if you have that finding, it's still very common for judges and juries to um, just find you guilty anyway. So that's 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 part of that's part of why the number is so low. The the other reason that that number is, is fairly low is that once you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, you are committed into the custody of the Commissioner for Behavioral Health and Developmental Services for an indeterminate period of time. So you are um, sent to a state psychiatric hospital and the duration of your confinement there is for an indeterminate period. And we certainly have had instances in Virginia where had the defendant simply pled guilty to the charge that they would have spent less time in prison than they ended up spending in a state psychiatric hospital after being found not guilty by reason of insanity. And that's a strong deterrent um, for pleading um, not guilty by reason of insanity is because you really don't know um, how long you will be deprived of, of your liberty as a result. And was that the part of the impetus for this new bill so that that wasn't something that um, clients would have to make that decision or attorneys would have to make that decision for somebody? Um, it, was, it was certainly part of our emphasis for, um, for advocating so strongly for this bill. I will also say that um, without without kind of nerding out on you and your listeners about um, Please like nerd out. legal um, legal definitions. In Virginia, um, the criteria for being found not guilty by reason of insanity is different than the question about whether or not you had the necessary mens rea at the time of the offense to be found guilty of a specific charge. So it, it, is, it is possible if you're thinking about it as a Venn diagram. Um, I said I wasn't going to geek out, but now I'm talking about Venn diagram. So I, I guess I have failed in not geeking out. But um, if you think about it as a Venn diagram, there probably are going to be some criminal defendants who now that this new rule of evidence will be in place effective July 1, there probably are some defendants who will satisfy the criteria for both, that they would in fact be able to use this new rule of evidence and they could also have been found NGRI. But because, of the, because the criteria for NGRI is what it is, generally, you will either meet one or the other. There will be it, there will be few people for whom both would be possible. If that if that makes sense. How did you feel the moment that you heard the bill was passed? And by the way, congratulations on all your efforts because I know it was significant amount of time 
and effort and expertise to make this happen. So can you just take me through that moment? I sure can. Um, it, was a sat it was a Saturday. Um, it was the last day of floor votes um, for the House and the Senate in our General Assembly session. And because of COVID, um, my husband and I have been homeschooling our six-year-old in first grade. And so she's been seeing mommy work with the lawmakers and over the course of the general assembly session, because I'm usually working from home. And she's we've been giving her this whole civics lesson on how a law becomes a law and all the work that goes into that. And so it was um, it was the last Saturday of session when this came up for a vote and my husband and our six year old and I were sitting at our kitchen table in front of our laptop um, watching the live stream of, of the General Very Assembly. Cool. And our daughter knew that we wanted to see lots of green votes, that the, the green icon was good. Um, and so, and then they started, they started populating. Um, and then all of a sudden it was just like, congratulations, the bill, like the bill passes. Um, and our, our daughter just said, we did it, we did it, we made it, we, we made a good law. Um, and That's it was awesome. just, um, it was a really, it was a really special moment. That's awesome. So how, you know, how did you get into this line of work to begin with? I mean, you obviously are very passionate about it and you've obviously done your work and your research. So would you mind sharing a little bit more about your background and why you chose to be an advocate for mental health? Um, yeah, so I, I originally thought that my work around um, mental illness was going to be in in bench science. I'm really interested in the um, kind of um, molecular genetics and how that impacts, you know, all, any type of kind of disease or like um, clinical process. But I really thought my focus would be in mental health. And that's because like a lot of advocates, um, my, my family has been directly impacted by uh, mental health issues. Um, but then what I, what I realized is that we have a lot of work that needs to be done right, like right now. Like we're, we're still probably a hundred years away from having any type of, um, genetic or molecular intervention for any type of, of mental illness. And there's, there is work that needs to be done that, that if someone was doing it right now would have a direct impact on countless lives. And so that's, that's kind of how um, I made the switch from kind of the more research science to um, doing, doing advocacy. And I have not, I've not looked back. Well, thank God there are people like you. Uh, you are the executive director of Partner for Mental Health. And could you share a little bit about the mission of that organization and its history? Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, I can. Um, Partner for Mental Health has been serving uh, the residents of Charlottesville since 1947. 
We are one of the oldest um, continually operating organizations, um, nonprofit or otherwise, um, in the in the Charlottesville area. We um, throughout our course of history, we have always been an affiliate of a national organization named Mental Health America. Um, of course, over 75 years, um, community needs related to mental health have changed. And initially, our strong focus was on improving the conditions in Virginia's state psychiatric hospitals. Um, in the 40s and in the 50s, if you were diagnosed with a mental illness, the likely trajectory of your life was that you would go and live in a state psychiatric hospital. And there was no discharge plan for you. Like the, the concept was mm. you're going to go live. Like this is the place where you're going to live. And this is the place where you're going to die. And you're going to be buried here actually. Um, and we did a, um, a lot of work to improve the conditions within Virginia state psychiatric hospitals and were really credited um, with, the modernization of, of those facilities. Thankfully, um, this idea of being put away and locked up for the rest of your life is, is really no longer the reality in Virginia. So now our focus is really on building communities that can best support their residents that live with mental illness on a regular basis. We think and we know and we believe that people with mental illness deserve to live meaningful and self-directed lives in their home communities. So that means not in a state psychiatric hospital and not in jail and prison. Um, and so our work is really twofold. We offer direct service to people who are living with serious mental illness to help them access the clinical care that they want and to help them improve their social determinants of health. Because we know that 80% of someone's long-term health outcomes are the result of their social determinants of health, not on their access to clinical care. So things like housing, having adequate financial stability, um, social supports, things, things of that nature. So we really, we work one-on-one -on -one um, with clients to help them improve their social determinants of health and to access clinical care if they want to. Um, and about half of our clients want to do that and about half of our clients don't. And that's one of the things that sets us apart um, from other organizations who are working with people with mental illness, which is if you never want to talk about your mental illness with us, you don't have to. We will help you meet the goals that you set for yourself even if you never want to mention um, your diagnosis um, or the challenges that your mental health might be presenting in your life. And that's, that's, totally, that's totally fine with us. Um, kind of the other branch of what we're doing is um, relates back to the work that I did at the General Assembly this year, which is taking the experience that we have seen through the lives of our clients and taking those experiences and using them to affect broader systems change and policy and practice change at the local level, but also 
um, also at the state level because the way that um, mental health resources are developed, implemented, and funded in Virginia is really a state level, um, is really a, is a function of state government. And so since that's the case, then the solutions to the problems are also, are also at the state level. Going back to the criminal justice system, um, this affected me personally through a friend of mine whose son had a mental illness, was charged with a crime, incarcerated for five years, and what she told me was that he had difficulty getting his medication, that they basically took it away from him. So what do you know about that and um, what is being done to maybe change that? Yeah, that's, um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that you've had kind of a, a personal experience with that. It, it's, um, it certainly is just one of kind of the countless challenges that, that we face when we have created a system that more often than not chooses to deal with mental illness by criminalizing and incarcerating someone, right? So our jails and our prisons have um, a very limited kind of mental health formulary. So that means like the, the list of medications that are available to inmates to treat their mental health conditions is fairly limited. And just because, um, you know, you might have a wonderful medication regimen that works for you if you're incarcerated or is more effective for you than anything else. Um, but once you're incarcerated, your options are really limited to what is available to you on the, um, the what the prescribers at the local jail or the Department of Corrections facility have access to on their, on their formulary. Um, and that can create really serious challenges um, for, exactly. for people. People who are already not in a good place um, can experience an increase um, of their of their clinical symptoms. So that is, I'm taking a we're taking a bit of a breather right now, having just gotten through General Assembly 2021, um, but a, a trying to figure out how to best meet the needs of people with mental illness who are incarcerated um, is one of the things on our list for General Assembly 2022. And of, but of course, I will also say. Um, the best intervention is the earliest intervention, right? right? So we would just prefer that your friend's son had never been incarcerated to begin with. And I think a lot of our effort and advocacy in 2020 uh, for the 2022 General Assembly will be, ar be around that. And then I also kind of look for the day where not only would your friend's son never have been incarcerated, but potentially he never would even have been charged, right? And and hopefully we're kind of we're kind of taking a pickaxe approach and we're we're picking away and we're picking away and we're picking away. And I look for the day in Virginia where the experience of mental illness is not criminalized at all. You know, we're talking a lot about Virginia. Are there other states that you have looked at and compared to? that in another in I can't think of another word but do better than us in Virginia in terms of 
protecting those, the rights of those with mental illness? Um, this, the sad reality, Candace, is that, is that most do, most do a better job. Um, Virginia, right before the pandemic, Virginia was posed to become one of the top 10 most wealthiest states. I'm not sure exactly, then the pandemic struck. So I'm not, I'm not sure exactly where, like where we suss out now, but we are, if we didn't actually break through and become one of the top 10 wealthiest states in the nation, we're like, we're not, we're still knocking on the door. Um, that said, um, Mental Health America, um, judges or like kind of assesses all of the states and their mental health delivery systems every year. And Virginia always ranks fairly near the bottom. I think this year we ended up being like, like 43rd. Um, and a lot of that has to do with Virginia's, how we choose to spend our public mental health dollars. So the average state spends about 75 cents of each of its public mental health dollars on funding community-based services and supports. And it spends its other 25 cents of every dollar on inpatient psychiatric care. So essentially like their state hospital system. In Virginia, we do it exactly the opposite way. So for wow. about a, 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 like approximately, um, we spend approximately 75 cents of every public mental health dollar on our inpatient psychiatric beds and about 25% on our community-based services. And the reality is that the more beds we make, the more beds we need because we're not investing in community-based systems and supports. Um, so it becomes, um, I, and I understand that it can be kind of appealing to think, you know, if we build more beds, we've solved our problem. Well, building more beds at the expense of adequately funding our community-based interventions just creates a really perverse positive feedback loop right. where then you just have more people that need to be hospitalized. Um, well, we've got, so, I hate so, to cut you off there, but we've got about a minute and 15 seconds left. So I'd like to get your advice to those who are listening to this podcast and to the community. What can individuals do to make a difference? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I would encourage individuals who are listening right now to ask really hard questions of your elected officials and the people who are running for office. What are you, if you're elected or if you are elected, what are you going to do um, to stop or reduce the criminalization of mental illness? What do those solutions look like to you and how committed are you to doing it? Um, 
and then to show up and to vote your conscience because that's how things that's how things change is when people who feel strongly about these issues um, inform themselves and then vote accordingly. Thank you, Anna, for being my guest and for such great information. Really appreciate it. This is Candace with Speaking Candidly with Candace. And remember, every cloud has a silver lining.